Hello and welcome to Abemus Papam, episode 219, Julius III. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. So when we left off last week, we found ourselves in the middle of a conflict between the emperor and the pope and a split in the Council of Trent. Part of it was due to Pope Paul III's nepotistic policies in northern Italy. But when Pope Paul III abruptly died in November of 1549, there was no certainty that the reform he had begun would continue, nor that the council, which was looking shakier and shakier, would succeed. Now, the split between the emperor and the pope and the French leading cardinals, who tended to be anti-imperial, manifested itself in the conclave. The imperial cardinals backed the great English cardinal Reginald Pole, who we met last week. The French wanted a candidate who would drop the Council of Trent altogether, and the Farinese faction, which was uh, supporting the, the late Pope's family, they wanted Cardinal Alessandro Farinese, the grandson of Pope Paul III, to be Pope. The election was close, and it took a long time. As the days got on, it was looking more and more like Cardinal Pole would be elected. He got within one vote of the necessary number, but he couldn't get any others. And his supporters came to him and said, let's just elect you by adoration, which was an old method of papal election, meaning that they're all going to just go to his chambers at night and proclaim him pope and hope that everyone gets carried away and recognizes him as pope. But Pole reportedly replied, I will be made pope either by going through the door and certainly not by going through the window. That was enough to doom his chances. After a couple more days, more French cardinals arrived, and it was certain Pole wouldn't be elected. Finally, a compromise candidate was proposed, Cardinal Giovanni Maria Ciocchi del Monte. The emperor had him on his list of people explicitly not to elect, but the cardinals didn't necessarily know that. And after some political wrangling by the French cardinals and Alessandro Farnese, the conclave decided on del Monte in February of 1550. He took the name Julius III after Julius II, who had named his uncle a cardinal and started his own career in the church. Which brings us back to Rome in September of 1487, when Giovanni Maria del Monte was born. His father was a lawyer, and his uncle Antonio was an archbishop. His uncle supervised the young Giovanni's education, which led him to school in Siena and Perugia. He was then brought to Rome when his uncle was named a cardinal by Pope Julius II. And in 1511, he was named the Archbishop of Manfredonia, and he participated in the Fifth Lateran Council. Over the next couple of papacies, Del Monte served in various government and diplomatic functions in Rome and around the papal states. He was appointed governor of Rome during this time and held the highest administrative position he would hold, as well as a governor of various parts of the papal states. He was named a cardinal by Pope Paul III on December 22, 1536. He was very involved in the preparations for and the management of the Council of Trent. For a significant portion of the council, Cardinal Del Monte served as its president alongside Cardinal Pole and Cardinal Cervini, guiding debates and organizing the structure of the council. Now, during that time, Cardinal Del Monte was usually one of the voices against reform in the Roman Curia, although probably not as explicitly as you might think. When I say just against, it seems like he's blatantly there. It was not that he wanted it to be corrupt. Rather, he wanted it to happen at its own pace and not prompted by the Protestant Reformation. And he himself enjoyed the privileges that might disappear in the event of strict reform being accomplished. The most important of these reforms was the debate over where bishops had to reside, common practice of the Renaissance was that the prelates held the title to a diocese, but they weren't really residing in that diocese or working in it. They would have a vicar do all the work for him and would take the title and the revenue and the prestige. Del Monte himself had benefited from this system and he had an incentive not to want to be sent back to his diocese. So when these stricter things about reform were starting to come up, Del Monte asked Pope Paul III to replace him in the council so he could avoid the discussions. Which brings us to his election as Pope in 1550. 
the defeat of the reform-minded Cardinal Pole and the election of someone seen as not being necessarily reform-minded in Julius III certainly put a damper on the spirit of curial renewal which Paul III had brought with him to Rome. If you remember, the Council of Trent had split between Bologna, where the Roman bishops had gone, and Trent, where the imperial bishops had remained and had been put on a pause. And there's no guarantee it would reunite. And with a pope who was seen to be more like some of the Renaissance princes that went before him, would it ever open again? Now, he was certainly like the earlier Renaissance popes in his nepotistic side. One of his earliest acts as pope was incredibly scandalous. It was the elevation of his supposedly adopted nephew, Innocenzo da Monte, uh, to being cardinal at the age of 17. Innocenzo was a poor boy who was found on the streets and was ambitious for advancement, and so he got a job working in the Del Monte household as a body man and a young page. And he quickly became a favorite of the cardinal. Rumors swirled about who he actually was, if he was the illegitimate son of Pope Julius, or if there was some sort of inappropriate relationship going on with him between him and his other uncle and the young boy. Regardless, it was so scandalous that a couple of cardinals, including Cardinal Pohl, wrote to the Pope remonstrating with him for the move. Innocenzo was reckless, he was not in any way faithful, and he lived a scandalous life. And eventually, after Pope Julius's papacy, he was imprisoned for murder. Now, the Pope had two major challenges on his plate left over from the last pontificate. The council split, as I mentioned already, and the risk of schism that came with that. If the council remained divided between imperial and Roman factions, then the church could become divided. And then there was also this conflict over Parma and Piacenza that Pope Paul III's nephew, Ottaviano, had participated in. Now, the former he worked to heal by moving the council back to Trent and having it start back up again in 1551. And the council got back to work talking about the real presence of the Lord in the Eucharist and the sacraments, but it would be short-lived revival. The second issue was more tricky. Ottavio Farnese had betrayed his grandfather, Pope Paul III, and seized Parma for himself, much to the chagrin of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V as well. Now that the Council of Trent was going again, Pope Julius wanted to be on the emperor's good side, and he told Ottavio that he had to return the duchy to the Vatican's possession. He, of course, said no, and he allied himself with the French, which led to war in northern Italy between the French and the empire. The French bishops pulled out of Trent, as did many of the German bishops who had to go back to Germany, where war was breaking out there against Charles as well, led by the Protestant princes. So in 1552, Julius had to suspend the council again. Later in 1552, because Charles was losing in northern Italy to the French, a truce was negotiated over Parma, and the Pope decided to try and stay out of any future fights between the empire and France. Now, there was some good news. Later in 1553, Mary I had succeeded her very Protestant brother, King Edward, to the throne of England, and she was determined to reverse the Protestant Reformation in that country and wrote to Rome for help. It needed to happen gradually, delicately, because... If they had overdone it too early, then it might entrench Protestantism forever in England. But Mary started gradually returning the Mass to England in the way of praying that the people had been used to. Most of the countryside still remained Catholic. It was really in the cities that people had really embraced Protestantism. So the Pope sent a legate, Cardinal Reginald Pohl, who when he was a young boy grew up with Mary and actually probably, we're not 100% sure, but had a crush on her when they were younger, and he helped with the reestablishment. Cardinal Pole preached the Houses of Parliament in 1554 and began this process of reconciliation, which would be completed in the following pontificate. One other piece of good news was the spread of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. Pope Julius was a big supporter of the young religious order, and he asked them to open the Roman College in Rome for the sake of the education of the clergy, part of the ongoing reform prompted by the Council of Trent. They also began their extensive missionary activity. St. Ignatius had written in the constitutions of the new society that they would undertake any mission that the Pope had for them, 
and plans were already being laid for some of the original Jesuits, including St. Francis Xavier, to go on mission to the Far East. But we don't have much more to say about Pope Julius. He died on March 23, 1555. The Council of Trent was still suspended. There was still uncertainty in Europe due to war and the continued growth in Protestantism. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, and he was succeeded by Pope Marcellus II, and we will talk about him next time. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.